Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Suma Reddy to the show. Suma is an entrepreneur, organizer, and educator committed to solving some of our society's largest systemic challenges. Suma is co-founder and CEO of Future Acres, which builds advanced mobility and AI solutions for farms to increase production efficiency, farm worker safety, and provide real-time analytics. She is a three-time ag tech and climate tech founder, is on the advisory board of Scale for Climate Tech, a board member of GrainPro, and teaches the future of food and climate, just entrepreneurship at NYC School of Visual Arts. She has also built and is active in inclusive tech communities and has been awarded the White House Champion of Change for her Asian and Pacific Islander LGBTQ and advocacy work. Suma, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Raj. Thanks for asking. Suma, I'd like to start the conversation with your time in the Peace Corps. Can you share a little bit about that with the audience? Yeah. Uh, so right after college, uh, I was in the midst of deciding to join the the Peace Corps. And it was really coming from two places. I think one, um, just a sense of curiosity about the world and uh, being the child of immigrants and knowing where my parents and grandparents came from in India, um, whether in the village or in the city, and sort of understanding the privileges which I grew up with. Um, uh, and then also just curiosity around, you know, getting out of my bubble and exploring a new place. So that led me uh, to Mali uh, in West Africa, uh, French-speaking um, Bambara as the main language. So it was an incredible life-changing experience, uh, those two years and three months. Now, as the father of three daughters, if one of my daughters came to me when she was, let's say, 18, 20, and said she's going to join the Peace Corps, I would love her to do it, but I would still have some apprehension. How did your parents feel about your decision? <laughs> um, they were shocked. Uh, to be <laughs> frank, I didn't give them a choice. I started applying my last year uh, at university. Uh, I think in January, I found out my acceptance by May. Uh, and that's when I told them and I said I was leaving in August. So it was it was not a discussion. I was so firm on this knowing that this was the right path for me, even though I was terrified. Um, right, I had never really traveled or lived uh, in a country like Mali. Um, I had never even gone camping. So, you know, sometimes people think Peace Corps are outdoorsy people, right? Things like that, um, because there is an environmental element uh, there, right? You're, you're going without running water, you're going out with electricity. Um, and I grew up in a suburban bubble. Um, so yeah, my parents were 
shocked, um, but they also are very open minded and they're like, you're going to do what you're going to do. So good luck uh, and just make sure you stay in touch. <laughs> now, if my research serves me right, you were there for two years. Is that correct? Yeah. Two years, three months. Share more about that experience. Yeah. So um, I was terrified, uh, to be honest, uh, right when I was going because it was such a brand new experience. Um, so I get on a plane from Philly uh, with the other Peace Corps volunteers. We fly to Bamako in Mali. And the first three months are really um, getting integrated uh, into sort of the culture and the language and community. So it was immediately um, placed with for three months with a host family and started to learn um, Bambara, the local language, um, as well as French. And so most post Peace Corps volunteers had had some grounding in French, but I had taken Spanish in high school. So I would say one of the first challenges and probably the biggest challenge was communication. Um, the second challenge was sort of the lifestyle adjustment, um, you know, not having running water, not having electricity. So when I eventually uh, landed in Kangaba, which was my main placement, um, adjusting to that. But to be frank, that is a much easier adjustment than I would say communi communication and culture, right? Because to get things done, right, you really need communication and you need um, you mean you need people, right, to sort of um, work with and collaborate with and learn from. Um, so, so I think a lot of people like to maybe talk about that. Oh my God, no running, no electricity, like hundred plus degree weather because Mali is, uh, I think, over a third desert. Um, but it was really uh, the challenges were around just being able to speak the language and get work done. Uh, all that said. Um, Right. The work I worked on was, you know, hosted a radio show, uh, which was very common in Mali um, and uh, talked about everything from savings to nutrition, um, um, played Bob Marley uh, incessantly because uh, it was a very Bob Marley was very popular in Mali. So it was really fun. Um, and then the another project I worked on was really around youth education. Um, so we we brought kids all around Mali into the capital and sort of exposed them to different types of careers, whether it was a small business owner, uh, a doctor, um, you know, someone working at USAID, uh, things like that. So it was really, really quite fulfilling. Um, and yeah, I mean, looking back, it, it just it was the best experience of my life and learning, learning and just being so grateful that, um, Mali back then was a very safe, stable uh, country, and the, my family there uh, was loving and kind um, and just absolutely amazing experience. And my name there was actually Aishata Samake. So for two years, uh, you know, you have a new name. So that was my, my name was Aishata over there. So two-year experience, a new name, learning the language. What was the transition like when you came back stateside? Um, so I, I hopped stateside for only a couple months. And the first thing I did was go to a grocery store and I would just, I was like, wow, what a waste, but also oh my God, so much twice. And I just ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. Uh, so you sort of miss the diversity in sort of in food. Um, as in as someone who loves food, like I love to talk about food, I love to eat food, I love to discover food. So um, I know that sounds very superficial, but uh, it's a huge thing. So that that um, 
was sort of the transition. And, and then you see the consumerism everywhere, right? So when you live in a, in a country that doesn't have that um, because it is, uh, you know, it is landlocked, right? There's no, there's not a lot of infrastructure in terms of trade and right, supply chain routes and that, things like that. Um, Mali at the time um, was, you know, the quote unquote third poorest country in the world, right? So, uh, so the rampant consumerism in the in America definitely slapped me in the face. Um, um, but also just, you know, grateful to be back and uh, be around family and friends again and enjoy enjoy the time. And uh, again, I only spent a couple of months. I then moved over to India uh, to work for a microfinance company. And how long were you in India? Uh, so India was almost two years as well. And uh, it was with a company called SKS Microfinance, uh, which was giving microloans, $100, $150 loans uh, to women, 100% women to uh, invest in income generating activities. So that might be buying a goat to sell goat milk, buying bangles to sell in the market, cows, um, chickens, things of that nature. Um, and it also ended up being a very, very high growth startup that would IPO and, and get acquired uh, over the span of its life. Sounds very familiar to a Kiva model. Yeah, uh, very. Kiva is interesting because Kiva was based in the U.S. Um, and sort of the microloans were given to people in other countries. So this this company was, you know, born and raised in in Hyderabad in India, um, and was sort of building that microeconomy within villages uh, in in India. But yeah, very similar. You're totally right. So between Mali and India. What are some of the learnings or perhaps life changes that have stuck with you over time? Great question. Um, so I think, you know, from a professional sense, I think I got hooked on build, grassroots and building things from scratch. Um, and that would lead me to entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, how do you take nothing and build it into something? Um, I think the the second piece uh was community right and and the power of when you're building things from from that level right how do you engage people communities stakeholders um users consumers right whoever it is um to make sure that you're building things in the right way um the, i think the third piece was innovation so this wasn't something i thought about um to be frank much in my 20s but then when i was at sks it was interesting that the innovation was actually a software uh, database, a list of members, how, you know, the number of loans they took, the amount of loans. So pretty, you know, for us in the West, right, basic stuff uh, in terms of bookkeeping and uh, data management. But it was that, that quote unquote innovation that really led it uh, to grow as a company and be able to go from one state to five states to 11 states, et cetera, within India. Um, and so I started to realize the power of, you know, innovation, whether it's in terms of technologies or business models to drive growth. Um, yeah. So that, and then on a personal level, I think just, it's such a privilege to be able to live in other countries. Um, and and just learn from cultures, learn from people, learn from languages, uh, and immerse yourself in that. And so even though I'm stateside now and have been for more than a decade, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a curiosity that never goes away. 
Do you have any wanderlust gnawing at you to go somewhere else? Oh my gosh, yes, Raj. I, <laughs> I absolutely do. I I think one of the things that grounded me, um, and, and it's a good thing, right, is that I ended up coming out uh, as gay when I was in business school um, in Philadelphia, Wharton, uh, to myself. So I was pretty repressed, I would say, and that repression led me to adventure and go live in other places. Uh, uh, but once I started understanding myself better, um, you know, I that meant being in the U.S. and dating for the first time. And, you know, now I'm married and I've been married for three years uh, with a partner for seven years. But it's a whole other chapter, you know, part of life, right? Relationships and, you know, building a partnership with someone. And I would say my first chapter of life was really around experience and profession and and things like that. And of course, now I'm merging the two. So my wife, um, uh, she's American, grew up here, uh, but she's lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years at one point. So we we talk a lot about what kind of work would, you know, take us back somewhere, right? We're really open, you know, I think we could live pretty much everywhere. Um, so, so, so maybe one day, you know, maybe we'll have a couple of kids strapped to us and uh, take the kids somewhere and live, live somewhere else for a couple of years. Very nice. Now you mentioned food, you mentioned entrepreneurship, you mentioned innovation. Let's fast forward to today. Can you give us an overview of Future Acres and your role at the organization? Absolutely. Um, so Future Acres is a company that builds advanced mobility and AI solutions for farms. Uh, so the first solution is called Carry and Pick, um, essentially an intelligent transportation solution, uh, crop transporter uh, in simple terms to increase uh, efficiency on the farm, improve farm worker safety and provide real time data and analytics. So, you know, in simple terms, we're building autonomous carts um, to improve logistics on the farm. And really what it gets at is the humongous challenge uh, around food production in our country and around the, in the globe. Um, $1.4 million, billion dollars, sorry, is the size of the global specialty crop market. Specialty crops are your fruits, your vegetables, your nuts, you know, everything nutritious, right, in your diet. And 40% of that actually goes to labor expenses. And the reason is because uh, fruits and vegetables, they still take a lot of manual high-touch labor. And um, what we understand, right, is that we know who our farm workers are doing the hard work, doing the skilled work, oftentimes mi migrant workers. Um, and so for us to continue to meet our food production goals, deal with our fragile supply chains, um, dealing with our rising expenses, you know, in this country, decreasing immigration for agriculture, um, the demand for consumer, you know, organic and sustainable, um, we really need to think about how to innovate on the model and, and technology and hardware and autonomy um, is one way to think about that. And how does your device work? Uh, so essentially, um, with two parts of the system, one is called Carry, which is the autonomous harvest companion. The second part is called Pick, which is a smart wheelbarrow. So, uh, Raj, if you were the picker uh, and you're on the farm and you're picking your table grapes, uh, the, your main tool is actually a wheelbarrow. So the smart wheelbarrow is something just with sensors to capture time and location and weight. 
So you're loading, you're picking, you load those grapes onto the smart wheelbarrow. And there's a fleet of carries uh, at the beginning of what's called the sorting station. Um, and once you hit uh, and get closer to sort of that limit of 200 pounds, one of those carries will autonomously uh, transport uh, to you. And then you could load up the carry with your grapes uh, and send it back. And so it sounds like a very simple mechanism and it, it, it is, but over time, and when you think about farms that are 100 acres, 500 acres or 3000 acres, uh, can increase that harvest efficiency uh, by up to 30 to 40%, um, which is major, major revenue dollars uh, for the farm. And then of course, make the work life of farm workers a bit easier because this is hard, 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 tough work. You know, on its face, it sounds like one of those forehead slapping moments where you think, of course, right? Yeah. But um, from what I'm hearing, the carry and pick will also help the laborers because it sounds like before they would have to fill the wheelbarrow and then go to a certain point to unload and come back again. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, and that takes up 30% of their uh, day currently in terms of time and energy. And also, it could assist laborers because if the wheelbarrow is too heavy, then it's more prone to injury. Exactly. Um, and you see that a lot. And of course, with climate change and in California, which is considered the breadbasket of the U.S. in terms of specialty crops. I know that's a very confusing term for it, but that's, that's what it is called. Um, rising, right, uh, rising climate, droughts, heat waves, uh, you're going to see more what's called heat, heat related illnesses or HNIs. I'm sure you're seeing them today already. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now you mentioned specialty crops. Which crops have you started with? So we started with table grapes. Um, so table grape market in California is about $1.7 billion. Uh, what's really incredible about table grapes is that 99% of them are grown in California. So from the perspective of business and go-to-market uh, strategies, it's an incredible opportunity to have 99% of your beachhead or first market uh, existing within one state. Now, I'm going to ask what might seem like a stupid question, but here I go. Um, you specifically called out table grapes. Are wine grapes harvested differently? No, it's a it's not a stupid question. It's a very smart question, um, and something I had to learn as well. Right, I didn't I didn't grow up on a table grape farm, so um, <laughs> so it's uh, so one of the things around mechanization um, is for something to be able to be mechanized. Um, a lot of times, you'll like throttle and thrash that that crop. Um, and so for, for some wine grapes, and this is not all, it, it's already, the process of harvesting is already mechanized because it doesn't matter what the grape looks like. Uh, it doesn't have to have that pristine quality that you see in the grocery store. Um, so that's where that differentiation occurs. We still have a market definitely for wine grapes, but what we know of the table grape market is that a hundred percent is fully, fully manual. Um, and th that, those percentages uh, start to change, uh, as I mentioned, with wine grapes. So first of all, the language, throttle and thrash, um, <laughs> could it be kinder? Like maybe cuddle and something? Yeah, cuddle and something. I mean, think about your, your other things in your life that might be mechanized. Uh, 
you know, the dishwasher, right, which has changed the life of many of us, uh, privileged New Yorkers who can afford a dishwasher, right, um, uh, and others. But uh, yeah, it's uh, the, the, that's the interesting thing about things that are mechanized, especially in ag- agriculture. And one reason you see uh, a lot of mechani- mechanization among row crops, so that's soys, wheat, corns, um, is that you can throttle and thrash that, right? Where uh, what's super special about your fruits and vegetables is you need that really delicate manual touch. It's very skilled labor uh, when you think about our, our fruits and veggies and the, the amount of work and care that goes into, into picking your fruit. I know this might not sound terribly PC, but the idea of taking Mother Nature's bounty and throttling and thrashing it just doesn't sound good to me. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's a fair point. Um, I'll try to come up with some new, uh, new words. <laughs> no, not you. I'm just, I wonder if that's an industry standard word. I mean, throttle and thrashing. It's, uh... No, I, I, to be frank, I just came up with it. And I'm <laughs> sure there's people in the industry that would be like, don't, you know, we lovingly like harvest that we, right? So we can say that as well. <laughs> we, cu- we cuddle and cajole our fruits and vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned you have smart sensors on the carry and the pick. What kind of data can the farmers retrieve from these devices? Yeah, data and data collection and analysis uh, is is a really fun part. So in terms of the type of information, at the very baseline, you know, the first question is what what do the farms need and what can what product can we build and what information can we capture? So in terms of the sensors, um, on the smart wheelbarrow, it's time. So time of picking, um, location, location of the picking and the weight, which uh, correlates, of course, to yield. And so the three categories that we then can uh, decipher through that information is one, the fleet management system itself. So if you're a thousand acre farm, you might have 120 of these systems, which is wild. It's a, it's a giant fleet. So once we, uh, with those sensors, we're capturing uh, time, time data, weight da- data, and location data. And what's interesting is we can gather three types of categories of data with that information. The first being the fleet and the fleet management. So imagine when you open up your Lyft or Uber app, you can you can see where your car is. And so similarly, this is actually very important. Like, where is your fleet? If you have a thousand acre farm and 120 systems, you wanna know where things are in real time. Um, So that's level one. Uh, Second is really around the correlation between, you know, the farm worker and the yield and pay and payroll systems. Um, So oftentimes farm workers are paid uh, piecemeal, sort of per box, um, per weight, things like that. So being able to correlate that. The third, um, which is where we get into sexy layers of data, in my opinion, is uh, information around the yield. So yield per location or yield per varietal. So you might have an Allison grape, uh, you might have a Thompson seedless grape, right? Any one farm might be growing 12 different varietals of grapes, um, early season grapes, mid season grapes, late season grapes, um, and being able to to aggregate that data. So it becomes quite interesting for us. And what the f- one farmer said to us was, you know, currently I'm making seven figure decisions uh, based on kind of my historicals, guts, uh, and intuition. And it would be really incredible to have real time data uh, to to be able to back up a lot of that decision making. 
In my mind right now, again, with data, I think where I'm going is you mentioned yield specifically, and it could even help the farmer change irrigation, fertilization, because if some parts of the farm are, sounds like prior to this, you know, you get a wheelbarrow of grapes, but you don't know where it came from. So you don't know from irrigation standpoint or fertilizer standpoint, but with yours, you can identify almost where certain batches coming from. And if they're better or worse, you can adjust accordingly. Yes. Oh my God, the genius. So that's, that's where we'd love to go, which is called sort of proscriptive analytics um, and being able to identify, yeah, issues, you know, in real time so that, and then actions can be uh, taken. So this could be around, you know, we're talking about yield, but like the next layer is what if we get crop quality and health metrics? What if we get environmental metrics, right? And things around soil. Um, and so there's a lot of this predictive and that, analytics, real-time analytics, and then proscriptive uh, kind of measurements that we can start to um, pull at over time. Are you using any kind of mapping technology? Yes. Uh, so definitely um, with the fleet management, you know, we, we have to map, we map the farm uh, before we enter the farm. So we are using mapping technology. So you mentioned the farmer saying prior decisions are you know, seven-figure decisions, I think you set up being based on intuition or hunches. How has the farming community taken to your product? Yeah, so it's been, it's been interesting. I think on one level, there's like, we desperately need this, right? Um, and I realize I'm overstating it, so I'm going to also get to sort of the, the hesitation too. But the sort of desperate need for this is because there is this what was an existential crisis, which was oh, imagine if there were farm worker shortages and if a 20% farm worker shortage uh, means 20% less fur manure and 20% less food shipped to the grocery store, that existential crisis is now real, right? And think about COVID and the worker shortages and those images of milk being wasted or the asparagus that wasn't picked. Um, you know, I think we all remember those were very just like incredible <laughs> images to see thousands of acres of crops that weren't picked. Um, so this is real and this is like a real challenge, right. Around workforce. I think the second is second layer in terms of the value proposition is what would it mean to increase sort of that harvest efficiency? And, um, so if you can offer a tool, uh, that is really simple, it's like, let's just do the transportation around it, um, and be able to increase those efficiencies, um, the revenue that you can get from that. So, you know, 30 to 40% increase in efficiency over time, you know, for just a fleet of six of these could be up to $80,000 in, in additional revenue. Um, and then the third piece, which we touched on, which was the data and analytics. So there's definitely like, we need solutions like this. And we understand the role of automation and technology as, as potential solving these problems. The flip side of this is that um, you need to prove it right? Anyone who's a technologist, anyone who's building hardware, and especially in agriculture, right, where you're very practical people is like, we need to prove, prove out that the hardware is robust, that it can handle the heat, <laughs> it can handle the dust, right? That it can, it is something that the farm workers will want to um, work with, right? We're creating what's called cobots or collaborative robots. So they work in tandem with the farm workers and the workforce, um, and so operationally, it really has to be as seamless as possible in terms of the operations. And so 
Um, what I love about people in the agriculture industry is they're very, very practical, right? So they're like, we've heard in the past 10 years, people promise all these things and like, it doesn't come to fruition. So, you know, prove it to us. And so that's been a joy, but I would say also, you know, a challenge of anyone in this industry is like, let's actually make this stuff happen, uh, which is, which is interesting. You know, I love this idea of cobot because you're not trying to replace the workers, you're trying to enhance them. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's what's been really interesting, um, you know, working in automation, acknowledging that there is this huge fear around displacement of workers and frontline workers, especially um, within, and I think it's something that we need to acknowledge and talk about those fears. I think, you know, in our case, yes, it is definitely collaborative robotics. And I think of it in the terms of the future of work of agriculture. So what happens when you shift the hardest types of jobs um, to automation? You know, how does this open up jobs in quality control um, or, you know, technical services management operations of the equipment um, and build, start to build new types of economies, um, you know, within Fresno, for example. And so that's something we actively think about in terms of another piece of our project, right, which is the educational and skill building um, and workforce component. Now, they say hardware is hard. How have you been field testing your devices? Yes. So yes, hardware is very hard. Uh, I don't know why I jumped into it, you know, 10 years ago with uh, physical projects, products and industrial projects and hardware and uh, I'm hooked. Uh, but yeah, it is it is hard. Um, so how we test is is in the field, right? That's the only way that things can be proven out. And again, we're we're close to farms. Um, so most of our engineers are based in Merced. There's farms all around there. And then of course we work with farm partners. So uh, it is, nothing is done without testing on the farm. What are some of the surprises you've come across during testing? <laughs> One I could think of, this is early on, this is early last summer. Uh, so we have, we have advanced since then, um, but we were, we had 3D printed uh, some parts, some prototype parts, as you do oftentimes in uh, your product, um, you know, prototyping process. And I believe it was over 100 degrees out and uh, some of those parts melted. Uh, <laughs> so it really double underlined the, this really has to be able to work. Those sensors have to work in 100, 110 degree weather in the hot sun, which is a challenge that industrial robotics don't have to face, right? And so uh, unique challenges with, with doing agrobotics, uh, for sure. Are the devices battery driven? Yes. Uh, so all battery driven. What kind of batteries? Uh, so swappable, rechargeable batteries that will last, uh, in the end, eight, eight days. So a full work day for the farm worker. And where are you in your product life cycle? So we, um, we did our first demo last year, um, at a farm called HMC Farms. Um, and right now we're building a small fleet of six of these, um, for another round of testing during harvest season, uh, with farms, um, to test out the new version of the hardware, um, as well as the software platform. And next year, um, going to grow that to, I would say a minimum of, uh, 30, uh, as a number of a fleet. Are you able to use off the shelf parts or have to customize? Yeah, ton of ton of off the off the shelf 
parts um, for sure, right? We don't we don't build our sensors from scratch, for example. So um, so it's a it's a combination of customization and, and off the shelf uh, parts, but a lot of off the shelf. I think you know the smart strategy that we're trying to employ is you know how are we building a platform that really can system integrate in the best ways, so that if we have a roving ground robot that's moving across the farm. Um, you know, what off-the-shelf sensors can we put on there to capture data or, you know, what what perhaps sprayers or different types of equipment can can work uh, on this platform. So sort of this platform play is, is something that we think about a lot. Are any of the current supply chain challenges affecting how you do your builds? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think... Uh, everyone is being affected by the fragile supply chains. And so, you know, in the short term, it means longer wait times, you know, for, for things like sheet metal or, or what have you. Um, the good thing is, you know, we have very, very local supply chains and that's how we built it out in that strategy. I think in the longer term, when we build a more robust manufacturing strategy, which I love talking about, but I know we don't have too much time here, um, is really, you know, looking at a, a regionalized, more localized approach, which has become, as we've seen, you know, an absolute necessity. And how are you currently funding your project? So we are funding um, primarily through equity crowdfunding. So equity crowdfunding um, is a platform where every day, everyday folks uh, like you, Raj, or me, um, you know, can invest, um, you know, thousand dollars or more into these into these uh, companies. So we were actually incubated um, via a venture studio called Wavemaker Labs, um, and so that was the first few hundred thousand dollars in terms of a check size. And then last year we raised um, around one point six five million through a first round of equity crowdfunding from, from investors. And we just launched a new equity crowdfunding round, uh, you know, a week ago uh, and hoping to raise a few million uh, from, from crowdfunders uh, by, by the end of September or October of this year. Well, excellent. I wish you best of luck on that. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you've had a really interesting journey through all your startups, your Peace Corps endeavors, your endeavor in India with the microfinance, what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself? Oh, wow. No one's asked me this question. Uh, big, so I think it's, one is, is this my path, right? And I think I, when I was first getting into startups and then even entrepreneurship, uh, I felt very much like an imposter um, and that I couldn't do it. And now, you know, that I'm 20 years into my entire professional journey, um, I do feel like this is what I was supposed to do. And there's been so many challenges and things like that. And I think landing in a place where I just feel so confident that, you know, this is, I get so excited by it and I learn so much and I feel like I'm working with friends or, and people who are smarter than me and things like that. So I think that's one was that as hard as the road has been, um, knowing that, wow, I'm, I've, I've gotten good at this, right? I, I did start off like as a neophyte and made so many mistakes and I will continue to make mistakes. But I think just understanding that, hey, this is what I love to do and I'm passionate about it. Um, sort of hardware and agriculture, climate, entrepreneurship, innovation and impact. 
right? And so all of those buzzwords combined, um, love it. Um, so yeah, I think that's professionally. I think on a personal level, just um, this <laughs> this is related, but this is my life. I tell people I have no hobbies, and I know that sounds really sad, but you know my hobbies are around all of this. So, you know, I teach a class around the future of food and climate and sort of models of just entrepreneurship, or I sit on a board, you know, for a company working with smallholder farmers, you know, in many, many countries around the world. Um, and so it definitely feels like, feels like a calling. Um, and I think from a leadership perspective, I think, uh, love working with hardware teams and engineering teams and impact driven teams, like, um, and learning sort of how maybe I like to work and lead uh, has been a, a really interesting journey as well. You know, you let off with imposter syndrome. The industries that you're in are traditionally male-dominated. When Suma shows up on a farm, how does that conversation go? <laughs> so, you know, it's it's an awesome question. I did have some fears um, about even though I've been in the agricultural space in different ways, indoor farming was, you know, my last company, uh, sugarcane farm, working with sugarcane farmers in India was prior, working smallholder farmers prior to that. Um, in the U.S., uh, right, we know who owns most of the land, who own, who are the farm owners, right? They look different from the farm workers. And so I did feel a bit nervous, but I will say those fears, um, have been misplaced to date, where I think people are so hungry for the solutions and understand the solutions are going to, you know, might come from a woman, might come from a brown woman, might, you know, I, I don't lead with I'm gay, right? But the sort of uh, <laughs> a queer brown woman. So I, one thing I get very excited about in this industry is um, now that technology is coming into play and things like that, we can really diversify the industry um, in a way that has not been done before. And, you know, for someone like me who considers myself an outdoor for American agriculture, um, my parents were physicians. Um, and yes, grandparents were farmers, of course. But, um, you know, how do we how do we work on bringing folks into the space who, like me, you know, maybe grew up in a suburb? So, so yeah, so I I mean I love it because I think it's an interesting challenge to to sort of be in these homogeneous <laughs> spaces. Uh, you know, I think I learn a lot, and you know, we we grow together. So speaking of diversifying, let's fast forward into the future. It's twenty thirty. Let's say your favorite publication could be Fast Company, Fortune, Forbes, Wall Street. You pick a publication. If they were to write and write a headline or perhaps even a short paragraph about future acres, what would you like it to read? Hmm. Okay. So I think it's future acres um, continues to help build farms of the future. And I think that would be one, um, helping address sort of food production and getting people excited about actually learning uh, about their food for the first time. Most of us don't. And um, developing technological solutions that that make it exciting for people to enter the industry um, and for our farms to thrive. 
I think second, climate, um, and really understanding the interplay between agriculture and climate and us being a leader in driving those conversations. Um, and the third, I think, around how we build companies. Um, I'm really passionate about trying to build companies with an understanding of not just the what, the technology, but the why, the how, and the who. Um, the model I uh, have come up with that is called just entrepreneurship, right? And how are we embedding, you know, these values, whether it's, you know, community focus or diversity or equity focus or justice. Um, and so being a model uh, where instead of saying like, ooh, Facebook took a wrong turn, right? It could be like Future Acres is one of a host of successful tech companies that are doing you know, trying, doing their best to, to run a company and run a tech company in the right way. I love the idea of how we build companies leads nicely to my last question, which is, and this could be professional or personal. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom, recommendations with the audience, what would it be? I think the advice I would give is, you know, for me, jumping into a lot of these spaces was difficult, but I, I think it was just how I was built and I needed to do it. So it's a, um, if you are built like this, like challenge the status quo, what are the status quo means, what your family wants you to do, what your community wants you to do, what your society is telling you to do. I think we each have our own path and sometimes that path will deviate from what others are doing. Um, but it's, it can be hard, um, but I think it's worth it, worth it in the end. And so that's definitely a lesson that I continue to learn um, with, with everything I do every day. Well, Suma, I think that's a great place to end. I really appreciate your time today, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Raj. This was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.